I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get a loan outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but it's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. Food comes up a lot when we interview Central District residents. I mean, food is part of just about everything we do. Food is family. It's the thriving small restaurants that used to line the streets of the Central District. It's the community celebrations that bring neighbors together. Food is also about cultural identity and history. Family recipes passed down through generations. And food is about taking care of each other. In this episode, we'll hear all about how food shaped life in the Central District. Go get a snack now, because it's going to make you hungry. My name is Sky. I'm 19 years old. I grew up on 22nd and Jackson. There's this place called Home of the Barbecue. It's up the street from here, off of Yesler. And that's how my parents kind of met, because my parents' families, they lived here for a long time before my dad and my mom got here. Like, their families knew each other, but my parents never knew each other. And so my mom was walking across the street, going into the barbecue place. My dad was, like, driving his work van. He's going to get barbecue. And then my dad just hits on her from the van. He's like, hey, you're kind of cute. And then my mom's like, leave me alone. And she's, he's like, let me buy you barbecue. And then my mom's like, okay. And then that's how they meet. And then they figured out that their families know each other. And then that's where it all begins. Home of the barbecue is still there. That same street that my dad talked about, still there. That moment in history is still there. So my name is Marie Kide, and I was born in Seattle, Washington. My parents are Ugandan immigrants, and so I am their first American-born child. I loved Sammy's, but she scared me. So a lot of times I would just order my food and wait outside because she was no joke. Sammy's used to be on the corner of 27th and Union, but it was a, a small burger shop that everybody in the neighborhood went to. And she had amazing burgers and she put like sweet pickles on them. And I mean, it was just fantastic. But she was like one of those stern, real women. Like she did not like you hanging out in her store if you weren't buying anything. But her food was fair. It was, it was amazing. And her fries were the best fries in the neighborhood as far as I was concerned. So she got my lunch money a lot. And Jordan's on Cherry. Faithfully, especially if you went to Garfield um, in the 80s and the early 90s because they had the best hot links. And at, at our 15 minute break, you could run across the street and get a hot link and be back in time to go to class. 
and Ezel when Ezel was running it. That was nice to actually be in Ezel's with Ezel's and his family when they were still together in that sense and um, and him in the back cooking chicken. The CD, there was always somewhere for us to go. Marie is not the only person to talk about Sammy's. We have to sneak in this short and funny recollection about Sammy's that Zola Mumford shared with us. Sammy's Super Burger, which had, and I know she passed away, so I'm not trying to speak ill of the dead. Just recently she did, but Sammy's Super Burger. So I go in there, because I know that it's supposed to be like this best hamburgers, and she advertises in the facts and everything, and the medium, so everyone says, oh yeah, Sammy, she owns her building, she's a hard-looking lady, she's great. And I go in, and there's a sign saying something like, we know that some people think we have an attitude, but we work very hard in here, and sometimes we are tired, and we are not always going to react in the way you want. And it's one thing to go someplace and be like, what you want? And it's another thing to have someone make a sign that essentially is the equivalent of what you want. And yeah. just looked at the sign and someone else, another customer was saying, they were saying, oh, it's okay. Um, don't talk to him. Just, just fill out the form saying what you want in your burger. <laughs> and I did. And my burger was very good, but... Something else that lots of people have talked about, and that's pretty funny, is this neighborhood delicacy known as the Sour Ball. Oh, yeah, yeah, lemon ginger sour ball. We call them sour balls. Salted ginger balls in a real lemon. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, those things are so good. The best thing that God ever created. There were these little stores, right? We'd go to those stores and get things like ginger. There was a seasoned ginger. And they were sweet and they were salty. And get the lemon. And with uh, peppermint sticks. And we would take a lemon and cut it in half. And a lot of kids would take the ginger and put it in a lemon. And then you either put a peppermint stick or, you know, the little round peppermint inside and you just suck on it. Those things are so good. Buy them every day. A true delicacy. That was a big deal, yeah, yeah. I feel like the Sour Ball had its moment and maybe wouldn't be such a huge hit today. I don't know, I'd be willing to try one. All of the places we've heard about so far, they were all locally owned businesses, primarily owned by black residents of the Central District. And with the exception of R&L's Home of Good Barbecue, they're all gone. I think that's a really important part of the story of food in the Central District. People used to get fed by their neighbors. It's part of that interdependence that defined the neighborhood for decades. I'm supporting you by eating at your restaurant, and you're going to make good food because I live next door to you. D. Charlene Williams sums it up with this next story. Miss Helen had Helen's Diner, and that used to be a famous eating spot. And people came from all over the world, and they loved her food because she... She does uh, down-home food, like beans, red beans and rice, greens and sweet potatoes and stuff like that, and people love that. And they come there and eat. All of the ball players and everything used to go there, from the Sonics, R&L Barbecue, and that's Barry Davis. And her father was a wonderful man. All of these uh, barbecue places that you see that got started, like the Hills Brothers, they used to call them the Nasty Brothers and all of that. Well, her father showed them how to do barbecue and train them. Mr. Davis, he was Reverend Davis, he helped all of the black people with barbecue. 
open up barbecue places. And then they didn't have money. See, where they couldn't get money at the bank, he loaned it to them. He gave them money, got them started. And I think that's very generous. And Mary is still over there on Yesler, right across from Pratt Park. That building's paid for. He, he built that building. My daddy built it, and it's all paid for. Dee Charlene is not the only one to talk about Hills Brothers or Nasty Brothers. It's one of those locally owned barbecue joints that comes up a lot in shelf life interviews. Lulu Miles got her first job working in the kitchen at Hills Brothers. I looked up to my dad a lot, and my my favorite memory of him is he owned Hills Brothers for a little bit, and this was back in 88, 89, I want to say, so he gave me my first job. And so Hills Brothers was over there off of 21st and Jefferson, I want to say, where they're condos now. But so, but Hills Brothers was a um, black-owned and operated family-oriented barbecue joint, and they had inflation burgers, and they had um, their hot links, they had ribs that melted in your mouth, you know, and they had a, a pit that they would put the meat in for just hours and let it smoke, and um, a lot of clientele back in the day. I'll never forget it, because this is how I got, that scar was from Hills Brothers, so I always had this. We were actually filling the clear cups of, uh, with potato salad, and so we had everything out. It was a table like this, and then I went to put potato salad in the clear cup, and I turned. The kind of table it was, it had like this foil lining, and it just sliced it open. So I went, Dah! and you know, I just went nuts. And then, um, you know, he's so country and Southern. He's just like, oh, that's a long way from your heart. Don't worry about it. I don't know if, I think he just put a Band-Aid because I never went to the hospital for it. You know, I look back at it, I'm like, wow, I got this from Hills Brothers and nobody would, like nobody would ever know that this was the Hills Brothers restaurant. like. It's surrounded by town, tall townhomes and condos. So this is all I have, really, of Hills Brothers, really. Yep. J.J. Jackson named his restaurant after his mother. So my restaurant was on 14th of Jefferson, Nellie's Place, Soul Food with Soul, and I named it after my mother, Nellie. And I started cooking soul food. And people started coming. White people, black people, Chinese people, all kind of people. That's how it started. And I was there 24 hours a day. I had a camper that was in the back in the parking lot I lived in. And the reason being, because I cook from scratch. Collard, mustard greens, you had to pick them, you know, soak them, cook your ham hocks or your, or your smoked turkey prior, you know, before you put your greens in. Pie, sweet potato pie, buttermilk pie, Possum pie, red velvet cake, butter pound cake, peach cobbler, six, seven layers. So you had to be there in order to prepare for the next day. And so that's why I lived there 24 hours a day. And people would come from all over. And uh, I had a, a bar there where you could sit at the bar and watch me cook. And that's what they loved to do. Where'd you learn to cook? My mom and daddy. Mostly my daddy. Because my mom, she only cooked twice a year. That was New Year's and Thanksgiving. She made my daddy cook. Even after leaving uh, Todd's Shipyard and then leaving our cleaners, Jackson cleaners, between 1st and 2nd and James, press while you wait, after we get home, my daddy would have to cook. He's the only man I know could 
Cook a dinner in 30 minutes and it'd be ready. Fried chicken, candy, yams, call it mustard greens, you know. So that's how, that's how Nellie started. And I was struggling to make it. I mean, whatever I made that day was the money that I paid to rent. A lot of people ask me, JJ, how did you? I say, because of my mama, because of a woman. Don't ever forget that. JJ Jackson, he shared so many great stories and a lot of them are about his family. I mean, anyone who has ever sat down for a family meal understands the importance of food in family. And when people talk about growing up in the Central District, they talk about extended family, regular meals with all the cousins and grandparents. For Isaiah Anderson, the family anchor was his grandmother. Every holiday, we're at my grandmother's house. It's just a no-brainer. That's where everybody ends up. And um, she lived in the same apartment since she came to Seattle. She had the same phone number for 30-something years. My grandmother cleaned house all of her life. You know, she, she over in Bellevue and Mercer Island is where she worked. Um, so her house was always immaculate. She had a runner that went from the front door through the house to the back door. And depending on how long you were going to be visiting, determined whether you got off the runner or stayed on the runner. <laughs> if you were just there for a second, you was like, hey, how y'all doing? We're fine. How you doing? Good. All right, then. We'll see you next time. Go. She was a person in the family that everybody, you know, bowed down to. No joke. Don't come in here acting no fool. Uh, you know, you, you don't come visit me during the year. Don't come on Thanksgiving. I don't want to see you just when it's Thanksgiving. And she would make requests like, Thanksgiving, y'all come. Don't bring your friends. I got enough food for family. Don't bring your friends. And my brother comes one day, and he's late, and he's got his girlfriend with him. <laughs> my grandmother gets up and locks the screen door. She doesn't close the big door. It's nice outside. It's Seattle, so Thanksgiving is nice. She locks the screen door, and we see him walk by, and he tries to open the door. He goes, he looks in and sees everybody, and the whole family knows not to get up and open that door. House full of people. And he goes, hey, somebody come open the door. She said, I wish somebody would open that door. He said, hey, Grandma, what's wrong? I told you don't bring nobody. Oh, but this is my girlfriend. Hi, girlfriend. I told you don't bring nobody. He said, oh, Grandma, quit playing. See if somebody opened that door. She did not. Nobody. And we were like this. Oh, my God. <laughs> so my brother leaves, walks around the corner. Five minutes later, he comes back without his girlfriend. <laughs> and we're like, Dura, where's your girlfriend? I took her to the bus stop. I'm not missing out on Thanksgiving dinner for her. <laughs> so, yeah, my grandmother was a, um, a character for sure. <laughs> I sure hope that dinner was good because Daryl did not have a girlfriend after that stunt. <laughs> Woo, that's too bad. <laughs> and now almost everyone we've interviewed has talked about the scattering of their extended family. As people lose their homes or get priced out of the neighborhood, Family get-togethers aren't as easy or as common. And the places where families get the food for those get-togethers, the grocery stores and the restaurants, they're gone. One local source of food and community that just recently went away is the Red Apple Grocery Store. 
As we've talked about on other episodes, the Red Apple was like a community center masquerading as a grocery store. For neighborhood seniors experiencing isolation, it was a place they could go where everyone knew their name. It was the only place in town where customers could find Southern products and ingredients. And it was the place where neighbors who had been displaced could come back to the neighborhood and be sure they'd run into friends. Here are a few stories about the role that store played in the community. This one is from Trelena Jones, who worked at the Promenade Red Apple for 10 years up to the day that it closed. Catfish and chicken and the greens and peach cobbler. Every day we have a guy, he, um, he makes it. So it's homemade. I don't know if you had our sweet potato pies, but he makes those too. They go fast. Like around Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're ordering like 100, 200, 300, and we still sell out. People come from... Renton, Kent, Federal Way, Redmond. They're like, oh, I drove all the way over here just for this fish or just for this peach cobbler. And I'm just like, dang, you guys traveled all the way. I'm like, I guess it's good, right? You know, a lot of those older people are done cooking. You know, they don't want to cook anymore. They're just like, so I think it's good. That's why they come in there every day for their, you know, it's not fast food. It's not fries and burgers. You know, they get meals, meatloaf, greens, I think that helps them a lot. Some of them can't cook, so I kind of feel bad for them a little bit. Cause it's like, what are they going to eat now? Or like the people at the nursing home, they're, they love their Southern food. That's what they were raised in, you know, and it's going to be gone from them. We get a lot of them that come and just talk to us, just want to have conversations. Uh, we have a lot of them, a lot of people that come in from, you know, they'll, as far as Everett or even further because the greens are, you know, made at the deli, you know, or and our meat department's got all kinds of stuff, which is just smoked meat that people use to cook their beans, you know, or smoke shanks. And that's where people know they can come and get it. That's one thing where people are like, so now what are we going to do, you know, when the store closes? Like, where are we going to go? That's Chewy. He told one story that really broke my heart about a woman who brought her son into the store every day. And her son, you know, Statistics, so he has a hard time with a lot of stuff, you know. But uh, for some reason, he likes pies, and he likes pumpkin pie, you know. And she goes every day to the Red Apple, and she will buy him a pie, you know. And sometimes she doesn't have enough money, and he doesn't understand that. He just wants the pie, so she goes outside, and sometimes people will give her money, or sometimes the cashiers will complete the money, you know, or sometimes you know whoever, you know, you just want to help. Most days he gets his pie, <laughs> you know. Well, think about that. Think how hard it'll be for that kid, you know. To um, to go there and you know, not have that, you know, we're crying. It's just um, I don't know how to explain it. Like a community, it's like a community, you know. People run into each other that they haven't seen in years. People that they haven't seen in years, they run into each other at the grocery store and they talk and talk and talk and you know, it's a community store, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's how I feel. My name is Queenie Bradford, and I was born in Seattle, Washington on 15th at Group Health. This neighborhood is like a family. Everybody knows everybody. June, the lady in the grocery store, is my son's godmother. Michael, the, the manager, whenever I need have issues, I said, Michael, I need a prayer. Can we pray together? Anytime, Queenie. I got you. Certain products that you can't find in stores, 
you can find right here. Oxtails, you know, smoked neck bones. Yeah, Red Apple is always the spot that you can come to no matter what. This is Isaiah Anderson again. He's such a good storyteller. Well, I'm going to tell you now, Red Apple Catfish outdoes everybody catfish. My aunt, who cooks for our church, she will only buy her rolls from Red Apple. Whatever we have, whatever celebration we're having, pastor's anniversary, whatever it is, we're going to have rolls. They're Red Apple rolls that my aunt bought. Of course, that she put her pound of butter in. There's a lady that works over there right now, June. I've been knowing June since I moved to Seattle. Forever. Love June to death. Every year I do my program, you know, and the kids come up, up here from Langston Hughes and, and they walk in and June will call me. We got some kids up here, Isaiah, acting real bad. And I know they're part of your program because I just asked them, what were they doing? And they were like, we were at Langston this year. And they didn't think I knew who you were, so I just had to call you. Right? And so we still have that connection. So, you know, literally, if I walk into Red Apple whenever June's working, I don't care who she's taking care of, we stop and give a hug. Man, I miss the Red Apple. Those stories paint a really clear picture of the ways that food and community overlap, and also the ways that the displacement of neighborhood restaurants and grocery stores can really disrupt people's lives. One person who kind of got her start at the Red Apple is Chef Christy Brown. In another episode, we hear from her about how the Red Apple was the first store to carry her product, the amazing Black Eyed Pea Hummus by That Brown Girl Cooks. But Christie's education as a chef happened almost entirely in the Central District, in small, Black-owned establishments. Back then, Broadway was such a big deal, you know? You could, you could just do so much, you know, as the movies were up there, you could go kick it at the Broadway market, you know, you hang out at the park. We, you know, always somewhere to eat, always really good, interesting, different food. The Thai place that was like all the way down at the end on the right hand side. I always thought it was really great because they had like this full kitchen. And I, I was I knew I wanted to be a chef long before any of this. So food was a big food was always such a big deal to me. And so it was like going in there and seeing all those Thai women just cranking out all this amazing food. And it was just like I had never seen anything like that. So, yeah, I was totally on Broadway all the time. And then um, I um, finished up the culinary program at Seattle Central. And then I worked at Plenty. So Jim Watkins is a black chef. And um, he started a kind of like a co-op, but it was between three owners. It was a deli, a wine store, and at night it was a, a restaurant on 32nd and um, Union, off of Union, up in Madrona. And it's so funny to me, people don't know, but it was an amazing store because he is badass. And I got to work with him for two years, and that was pretty pretty instrumental um, in my development as a chef. And then I went from there to Kingfish. Ooh, I learned a lot. I learned about work ethic, I learned a lot about food and where it came from and treating it with respect and learning how to cooperatively work with vendors and just watching something grow, how you manage growth. 
really kind of set the tone for where I'm at right now between the two of those places. Like gave me a pretty much foundation. If you were to have their food and then later have mine, you'd be like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. And that to me is a compliment, you know, because I was able to take what they gave me and then add my own thing into it. So I appreciate them a lot. There's another important way that food fits into Central District history that we haven't talked about yet, and that's food as resistance. One of my favorite interviews was one we recorded with Cecil Beatty and his daughter, Phyllis Yasutaki. In this excerpt, they talk about the Black Panthers. Well, what they actually did was, Black Panther, they fed a lot of kids in the morning at breakfast. They, I mean, they fed tons of breakfast food to the kids. That, and they that, shamed the country into starting that breakfast program. And they collected homes. money on the street corners for those breakfasts. They mm-hmm. fed kids. They'd yeah. be out there hustling money all the time, hustling. And they cooked at um, Langston Hughes. They would cook breakfast for the kids every day. And that's what started the, the breakfast program in the, in the public schools, was they, they shamed the, the government into um, feeding poor children in the morning. Lottie Cross works with the Clean Greens program, which was started by New Hope Baptist Church. Clean Greens farms organic produce and sells it to Central District residents at affordable prices. I work, you know, I do the farm. You probably heard of Clean Greens Farm. And we've been around 10 years now. We're doing stuff that nobody else is doing, really. We're doing the farm. We're bringing the produce into the city. And we're selling at reasonable prices so that people can eat healthy. My daughter said, Mom, you came from a farm. Why would you want to go out there farming? (laughs) She just don't understand, you know. She doesn't understand the fact that I love farming. I love the dirt. I love to see stuff grow. And and I love love how the people enjoy the, the fresh veggies, you know, that we don't have. And that's why we started it, because Reverend Jeffrey got sick. The doctor said he wasn't eating healthy, so then he said, well, let's get some organic food in here. And then we do Fresh Bucks. The city did include us in that Fresh Bucks program. If you have an EBT card, if they buy $2 worth of greens, we can give them $4 worth of greens. All this high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, diabetes, and all that stuff, it's because people are not eating healthy. And I think we are making a difference with with a lot of the people that's eating organic food because uh, they just, they can't wait till we open the market again. And everybody loves it, everybody knows about it. It's necessary. Well, there you go. Food is family, food is connection to community, food is employment, food is innovation and resistance. Thanks for listening. Now go get some lunch. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at shelf underscore life underscore stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag Shelf Life Pod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at shelflifestories.com. 
Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Maya Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening.